0: Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, I love serendipitous moments when we have people joining our church, and it's Pentecost Sunday. And I say serendipitous with a wink. I think obviously God has uh, nice little surprises for us along the way. It was very fun and exciting for me to see all of you up here. It was. It's been great getting to know all of you, new folks, through that class, and um, we're just very excited. That you're joining with us in mission at this church, um, we're continuing our study through Luke, and this morning we're going to be looking at a story that has become so familiar that I'm afraid the, the the force of meaning has been completely buried beneath layer upon layer upon layer of very good intentions, absolutely good intentions, and we're all really familiar with. This idea that we're going to be looking at this morning, whether you're a lifelong churchgoer or this is your first Sunday setting foot in a church, most of us have heard of Good Samaritans. Whether it's hospitals and healthcare, or if we're thinking about legal provisions for helpful people, we all get the basic idea it's good to be a Good Samaritan. Which means that this morning we've got to work a little bit extra hard to strip away our cultural assumptions about what is happening in this story. So no offense to those of you that do fundraising for hospitals, but Luke may have had more in mind than just a good plug to get people to give, and we're going to look at that this morning. So let me read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is from Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we gather this morning because of what happened so many years ago on Pentecost. Because the Holy Spirit has come into this world in power to form a new community of people a community of upside-down people. I ask that this morning, as we look at this parable that has become all too familiar, that we would again be turned upside-down by the gospel of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in his name. Amen. Christians suck! Shouted the goalie, Andy. It was the playoffs, and my soccer team was walking from one end of the sports complex to the other. And I don't remember the exact conversation, but I can still picture Andy's face as he shouted that at me and some other guys on our team. A good chunk of our soccer team was made up of friends of mine from our Christian school that we went to. And needless to say, Andy was not one of those kids from the Christian school, but as each of my friends from school remained silent, I realized that it was falling to me to answer this challenge. It was falling to me to make a good witness for my religion. And so I walked up to him and put my arm against his neck and slammed him into the backstop <laughs> and said, You suck. <laughs> An inauspicious beginning for a future Christian minister. You see, my foundational ideas about life and the world were tribal. I was part of the good tribe, the Christian tribe. And even though my soccer tribe was important, it wasn't as important as my Christian tribe. A soccer tournament was nothing compared with the cosmic, real-world tournament that was playing out all around me, a tournament that I was assured I would win. Which is to say... The foundational ideas that I had about Christianity and my place in it could not have been farther from the truth. This morning, we're looking at a story about tribalism. It's a story about outcasts and insiders, losers and winners, neighbors and enemies. And this story subverts all of the categories that we have so neatly packaged up and in the bank. So as we jump in to this story of the Good Samaritan, I have a premise that I'd like to get out in the open at the very beginning. If our telling of the Good Samaritan parable is self-empowering, if it leaves us feeling like we can conquer the world and come out as the tribe on top, we are telling it wrong. So we're going to look at this story like a good joke. The setup, the twist, the twist and the joke. Let's begin with the setup. Luke tells us that an expert in the Jewish religious scriptures comes to put Jesus' theology to the test. And just like our day, if you're part of religious circles, you know that there are certain questions that are meant to kind of gauge your theological fidelity. And the same was true in Jesus' day. And this is one of those pretty standard questions for that day. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And in that religious context, as the Jewish people were reading their ancient scriptures, it was more a question of, how do I achieve entrance into the age to come? The people of Israel thought in terms of the current age, the age in which they were still in exile, still under Roman rule, an age that would end in the day of the Lord when all things would be put to rights, and then a new age would dawn, an age of vindication an age in which the people of Israel would once again be at the center of God's working in the world. So this religious establishment guy comes up and asks a pretty softball question to Jesus, what do I have to do in order to get into that new age? And Jesus, a renegade rabbi who, as Luke tells it, is increasingly falling out of favor with the religious establishment, seems like he's walking right into this guy's trap walking into a discussion about the Torah, the Jewish scriptures, with a guy who studies them for a living. But Jesus is a little more clever than we often give him credit for, and he answers his question with a question. What is it that Torah says about entering the age to come? How do you interpret what the law of Moses, what what God's word says about that? And the lawyer answers very well, He sums up the law in the same way that Jesus sums up the law at other times. Love God and love your neighbor. Bingo, says Jesus. You've got it. Do that and you're in. And if this had been the good old days in Israel's history, the golden age, back when the monarchy was still intact, back before the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Romans had chopped up God's people and carted them off, the conversation could probably have ended right there. Torah taught about how to love God rightly. There was rule upon rule about how Israel was supposed to live in order to show their love for God. And loving your neighbor meant treating your fellow Israelites with respect. You were to love the people that share your same convictions, your same moral outlook. Love your tribe That was how it got translated after generation upon generation upon generation of people who were only surrounded by other people that looked and thought and acted just like they did. But now, the tribe had been infiltrated. Jews had intermarried with Assyrians, syncretizing Judaism with foreign, non-Torah, non-God-approved worship. The Roman government was everywhere. Soldiers were constantly milling about Some Jews were still holding out for God's promise that he would send a Messiah, but others of them had given up hope, and even worse, had been working in collusion with the Roman government, feeding off the distress of their own people. So who exactly is my neighbor? After all, Jesus, life is not as simple as it used to be, back when we believed all the same things about the world. So, if loving God and loving neighbor is how I enter into the age to come, we need to set up some boundaries. Because, to be perfectly frank, there are people in my neighborhood whose entire lives are an antithesis to what God is doing. They do things that God condemns all the time, and they're not interested in seeing his new reign in the world. So, who exactly is my true neighbor? The world is unstable and unsafe. Who are the people that I'm supposed to love? just people within my tribe, right? The lawyer is asking these questions, not so much out of fear, and even not really out of curiosity, but because he needs to know that his tribe is going to win the tournament. His tribe is going to come out on top, in which case there's really no point in loving people from other tribes, especially enemies. And so with these very real, very deep foundational questions about identity in the world. This man is asking these questions, and Jesus takes a breath and says, you know, three men walked into a bar. There's a butcher, a baker, and a candlestick maker. Jesus uses a very ancient form of storytelling in which there are triads set up. We still have jokes like this today. A priest, a rabbi, and a Baptist minister. As an aside... As a kid growing up in a Baptist church, I never understood how a priest, a rabbi, and a Baptist minister were walking into a bar because I don't know any Baptists that walk into bars. (laughs) But in Jesus' joke, there's this shocking, almost disgusting twist. We could say it maybe like this. Mother Teresa gets attacked on a dangerous stretch of highway, beaten, robbed, and left for dead. Gandhi walks by and ignores her. Martin Luther King Jr. walks by and ignores her. Charles Manson comes by and stops, and he helps her, and he bandages up her wounds and takes care of her. But really, there are no parallels in our culture to understand how Jews felt about Samaritans, to really understand how shocking Jesus' story really is. And mainly that's because I don't think there's really hardly any issue that I could safely say every single person in this room is on the exact same side of. We all have different views about a lot of different things, and so it's difficult for us to understand this centuries-long hatred between Jews and Samaritans. You see, people like this lawyer that were coming to Jesus, they were trying to keep themselves pure according to God's word. They were trying to wait for God rightly to come in and make life okay. The Samaritans were descendants of people who stopped waiting. They were descendants of people who intermarried with their enemies and set up a new religion. They claimed the same fatherhood. They claimed Abraham as their true father, and yet they worshipped uh, wildly out of bounds of God's word and God's law. These people were heretics in the eyes of the Jews. They were evil, evil people. But by now, I'm sure that many of you that have heard this story before are saying, yeah, okay, we get it. Charles Manson, probably not the best analogy, but we get it. It's shocking. It's a twist. We're supposed to love people that are different than us. But you know, it's really tough to watch The Sixth Sense again and not know that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. So good try, Steve. Sorry to ruin it. But there's just no way to say it in a more exciting way after you've heard it the first time. Bruce Willis is dead. You can shout it as much as you want. So why don't we just jump to the quick. We need to do better at loving, unlovable people. And we'll give of ourselves to those poor outcasts out there who are not yet cool enough to be part of our tribe. But this response is like laughing at the wrong part of the joke. Jesus says, Three guys walk into a bar and we say, <laughs> good one. Oh, that was so great. And we're laughing so hard at the wrong part of the joke that the next thing we hear him say is, go and do likewise. And we say, yeah, 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 we'll get to work. We're on it. But we haven't really listened to what he's trying to tell us. As I said before, if we walk away from this story feeling like our tribe is the generous tribe, Our tribe is the good tribe that maybe gets tired out, maybe needs to hear stories like this to get re-energized so we can go back out there and be the good and generous tribe to everyone else. We have missed the point. Because here's the joke. For a while now in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been harping on and on and on about his upcoming death. And the more he talks about it, the more confused his disciples get. As we've been saying for a few weeks now, we're we're kind of at this cusp in Luke's writing. We're at this turning point where Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, which is to say, he has set his face toward death. And a few verses back, Jesus wanders up to the collective ear of his disciples, and he gives it a wet willy and a sharp blast of air, and he says, Can you hear me? I am going to die. And the disciples are, like, grabbing at a gnat. They can't, they can't hear it. They hear a buzzing. They don't get it. They don't really get it, but they will soon. And then, after Jesus tells them that, and he sends them out, and he talks to them about what he's doing through them in a mission to the world, he starts laughing to himself. And he says, Father, I can't tell you how hilariously happy I am that we have continued to hide this from the smart people. And instead, we have been revealing ourselves to babies. I love it. And then, right then, right when Jesus says that, as if to illustrate the point, this smarty-pants lawyer, or that, that smarty-pants people just don't get it, this lawyer comes in with this great, smart-sounding question about gaining eternal life. So here's Jesus with his disciples on the road to Jerusalem he pulls his RV over to the side of the road to talk to this lawyer and he gets out and they sit on the back bumper and right on the back bumper of the RV says death or bust and no one asks him any questions about it he keeps trying to get it across and no one is getting it and he tells this story there was a man a nameless man with no identity traveling down this very highway pause in Jesus' story What is the purpose of this man's trip? The only purpose that this trip seems to serve is for this man to get attacked by evil men. He's stripped, beaten, and left for dead. And I'd like to point out that even though we call this the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's really the story of a guy beaten on the roadside. He's the main character that everyone else in the story interacts with. As Robert Capon says, all the good Samaritan hospitals have been misnamed. We should have been calling them Man Who Fell Among Thieves Hospital. But that doesn't quite have the same ring to it. So at the risk of sounding like a broken record, let me make it explicitly clear what Jesus and Luke are doing. Here is Jesus on the Jerusalem highway, headed toward the destination of his death. He is about to be stripped, beaten, beaten. And, left for dead. and he tells a story about a man on the Jerusalem highway who gets stripped, beaten, and left for dead. The first two people that come down the road pass by on the other side. Now much has been made of these two characters. Did they just pass on out of deference to the cleanliness laws that were set up in the Torah that they would have been very familiar with? After all, These were temple workers. They would have been precluded from touching a dead body. Or is Jesus just setting them up as complete jerks who are too self-involved to help a hurting person? And the questions that we ask about these two religious insiders, this priest and this Levite, start to lead lead our questioning about the Samaritan. Is he just a nice guy? A guy who really gets what it means to love other people? But when we understand that Jesus is telling us a story about his upcoming death, when we understand that he is the one on the Jerusalem highway about to be stripped, beaten, and left for dead, we start to see what these other characters are doing. You see, Jesus is not condemning people that are too calloused and too busy to stop and love and help a dying person. That is not the core of Jesus' condemnation. No. What the priest and the Levite have in common is that they are both temple practitioners. Jesus could have said a lawyer and a Pharisee come down the road, but he doesn't. And there is a distinction here. These men, this priest and this Levite, are actively engaged in the temple ritual worship, the atonement practices of Israel's worship. And in Jesus' story, these men, these representative of Israel's religious collective, simply do not have eyes to see, ears to hear, or time to waste on investigating a Messiah that has been beaten and left for dead. As ludicrous as it would be for two human beings to actually walk past a dying person on the road is as ludicrous as it is for these men to not see that Jesus is their real atonement. That's what Jesus is condemning. You see, the God that these men serve is a God who wouldn't be caught dead being caught dead in a ditch. They know how atonement is made. It's through the sacrificial system at the temple. And so the very people that should understand Jesus' mission of death, his mission of atonement with himself as sacrifice are just too blind to see it. The shock that it's God himself in the ditch is compounded by the disgusting insinuation that it's the wrong people that get it. It's a Samaritan. Luke is setting us up for Pentecost. He's setting us up for the day that we celebrate today, the day when the Holy Spirit comes to build up a new people of God, the church A place where tribalism of different languages and cultures is completely broken down. And suddenly, God's new people emerge as people that only have one thing in common. They are the exact wrong people. So if you're part of the church, you're part of the joke. The joke is that you have no business being here. Being part of God's community, and that's exactly why you're here. If you're not part of the church because you feel like perhaps you don't belong, you could never fit, that's the very reason to investigate what Jesus is doing. Because the kind of people that God calls are the people that don't fit, the people that don't belong, the people that couldn't be more wrong. That's what God is about. So what does it mean, then, to go and do likewise? This sounds like a morality tale. I mean, isn't Jesus telling us to imitate the Good Samaritan? Well, the answer is yes, but it's not in the way that we usually assume. Now, what I'm about to say is is not to say that being a good neighbor and loving people is a bad idea. And it's not to say that we shouldn't move people out of our enemy camp into neighbor camp. We should. Those are good things. Those are Christian things to do, but they will be frustratingly impossible if we do not understand what Jesus is asking us to go and do first. You see, to imitate the good Samaritan is to stop and see God in a ditch. It's to cease your attempts at self-atonement, self-redemption, self-salvation, Whether you think it's your religious do-goodery, your tightly held doctrine, your care for the earth, or perhaps, most ironically, your care for your neighbors that will atone for your mistake, you are those first two men walking by, too busy atoning for yourself to see God taking on the flesh of a neighbor and casting himself headlong into death for your sake. To go and do likewise Is to not be embarrassed by finding God in a ditch, but rather bearing His wounds, entering into His suffering, filling up what is lacking. And what we keep circling back to over and over and over again is in the Gospel of Luke: is that to follow Jesus is to follow Him into His death. And this has absolutely earth-shattering implications for who we are as individuals, for who we are as a church for how we act as individuals and as a church, and that we don't have time to to really go into all the implications because we would be here forever, here's the crux. If we continue to conceive of ourselves as people that largely have it together, as people that will achieve salvation through winning, through effort, we'll take one look at God in the ditch and pass by on the other side. If you're a winner, you can't worship a God who could fail as badly as a Messiah dying on a cross like a criminal. What an inconvenient God lying there in the roadway and you are forced to make a choice. Either pass by on the other side and ignore him or stop and enter in to his suffering. But if you want to be a good Samaritan, you must start by being a Samaritan, an outcast, a loser, a person with no claim on anything or anyone. So when you come across the one person for whom power and coercion are real, viable options, the kind of power that could turn the world upside down, the kind of power that only a king, only a god could have, and you see him instead, instead of using that power, you see him embrace failure and lastness and lostness and death, you realize that down is up because if God works this way, all of our assumptions about the world have to be undone. And now, now, good Samaritans, there is not a person in this universe that you could point your finger to and say, that person doesn't belong. That person isn't invited. That is the wrong kind of person. Because if you have been stopped on the road by a God who has been beaten, stripped, and left for dead, if you can embrace and be embraced by that kind of God, a God who is that wrong, you can embrace and be embraced by all the wrong people in the world. And when people think that you're crazy, as they see you embracing wrong people and they ask you, hasn't it cost you just a little bit too much? You'll look at God and you'll look at yourself and you'll say, what cost? What cost? He has done everything. Let's pray. Father, it is... Difficult for us to hold the tension in our minds that you are the all-powerful creator of all things, that this universe is sustained by the power of your word. And Jesus, through whom all things were created, you who are the king over everything, embraced death, embraced the most embarrassing sort of failure that we might have life. As we come to your table, would we be reminded that we enter into that life by entering into your death? I ask this in your name. Amen.